Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. And uh, today we're going to talk about neuroanatomy and physiology as it relates to anesthesia. We're starting with neuro things, so expect to see episodes on neuromonitoring, anesthesia considerations for things like craniotomies, cervical and thoracolumbar spine procedures as well. All right, with that said, let's give you a quick outline of today's episode. So first, we'll start off with the neuroanatomy, and we'll hit you with some high-yield anatomy facts. Then we'll move on to the neurophysiology. So the topics within this include things like brain metabolic needs, the cerebral blood flow regulation versus flow metabolism coupling and autoregulation. And lastly, we're going to hit on pathophysiology. So we're going to talk about the Monroe-Kelly doctrine, intracranial pressure, the causes of intracranial pressure, and lastly, the clinical presentation of it so you know what to look for. And uh, before we continue on with this episode, I would really appreciate it if you take the time to do a pre-survey uh, before listening to this episode. And the link to that is in the description. And there's only one question, so it's not going to take that much time. And at the end of the episode, I would appreciate it if you take the post-survey. Uh, same same question, and I left a field for if you want to leave feedback on ways I can improve the the podcast, the episode, that kind of thing. Okay, with that said, let's go ahead and get started. So we're starting off with the neuroanatomy portion. First, we're going to talk about brain compartments. So generally speaking, it's going to be broken up into two compartments, the supratentorium and the infratentorium. So in the supratentorium, it's primarily composed of the cerebral hemispheres as well as the diencephalon, which includes the thalamus as well as the hypothalamus. And regarding the cerebral hemispheres, there are four lobes, frontal, temporal, parietal, as well as occipital. And how you would fact about these, there's the primary somatal sensory and motor cortex adjacent to the central sulcus in the parietal and frontal lobes. All right, so that's the supratentorium. Next, the infratentorium, and this is composed of the brainstem as well as the cerebellum. And the brainstem is broken up into three main parts, the midbrain, pons, and medulla. And as you know, the brainstem is responsible to keeping life functions such as things like respiratory, cardiovascular senses, and it's the home of a lot of nuclei for the cranial nerves. So specifically, it's the, it contains nuclei for cranial nerves 3 through 12. Midbrain is primarily controls the autonomic functions, the respiratory, cardiovascular, centers of the brain, and it also controls different reflexes, things like the cough and gag reflex, as well as the pupillary reflexes. And the last part, the brainstem, it 
also responsible for consciousness. So this is done through the reticular activating system. Okay, so that's the brain compartments. Other high-yield facts, things like blood supply. So the brain receives 70% of its blood supply from the two internal carotids and 30% of it from the two vertebral arteries. So as you can expect, if a patient has stenosis of the internal carotids, it's reducing its major source of blood. Next is the CSF, and the average amount of CSF include is about 150 cc's in an adult, and the CSF, or sorry, it's a cerebral spinal fluid, and it's mainly produced in the choroid plexus of the lateral and third ventricles. And as it's produced, it goes through the ventricles and eventually it's reabsorbed in the durovenous sinuses, primarily in the sagittal sinus. And this is done through the arachnoid villi as well as the uh, granulations. But um, some of it uh, goes through the foramen mag- magnum and it is goes into the subarachnoid space as well. So that is why when you do spinals, you're able to uh, withdraw CSF. And the average production of CSF is about 15 to 20 cc's per hour. Okay, and the last part is the spinal cord. And again, uh, we, again, I have the diagram of the spinal cord tracks in the show notes. And we'll try to keep this as uh, simple as possible. Because to be honest, I hated neuroanatomy back in med school. That was probably my least favorite course. But that aside, moving on to the spinal cord pathways. So the dorsal columns, so these are the the columns that uh, run through the posterior side of the spinal cord are responsible to proprioception and light touch. The lateral spinothalamic tract, this is responsible for pain and temperature. And the lateral corticospinal tracts, as the name suggests, on a lateral side. And these deal with motor function. For us, the uh, very important thing is the blood supply. And the entire spinal cord is supplied by one anterior spinal artery and two posterior spinal arteries. So for the anterior spinal artery, it arises from about six to eight major radicular arteries, which eventually coalesce into the spinal artery. And the high yield PIM question that you'll get regarding this, whether you're on anesthesia or a surgery service, is the largest radicular artery is the artery of Adam Coetz. I think I said that right, but it's that one. And it usually occurs around the T11 or T12 level and supplies T8 to the conus medullaris. So it's about two-thirds of the total spinal. So yes, that's the largest radicular artery that supplies the anterior spinal artery, the artery of Adam Coetz. And lastly, the two posterior spinal arteries uh, supplies the dorsal horns and white matter. Okay, so that is a quick crash course on neuroanatomy. So let's move on to the more fun stuff, the neurophysiology. And starting off with fun facts about brain metabolic needs. So even though the brain 
is a relatively small organ in the body. It does account for 20% of the total body oxygen consumption, and it accounts for 25% of the body's glucose consumption because the brain's primary uh, source of energy is glucose. So moving back to the oxygen consumption, there's a important concept called the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption, and it's usually abbreviated as CMRO2. And the normal CMRO2 is 3 to 3.8 cc's per 100 grams of brain per minute. And this will increase or decrease based on the metabolic needs. Okay, and the regarding the glucose consumption again, uh, the brain does require continuous supply of both uh, oxygen and glucose, as we kind of discussed. And there's irreversible injury about four to five minutes of global ischemia. So when the brain does not get its oxygen and glucose supply, then you have issues with the ischemia. It's very sensitive to lack of oxygen and glucose, and you want to maintain tight control over these mechanisms. Okay, so that was the basics of brain metabolic needs. Next, we'll move on to perhaps the most important concept of cerebral blood flow regulation via flow metabolism coupling and autoregulation. So like other organs in the body, uh, the brain undergoes uh, autoregulation, and this generally occurs very quickly. And when I say autoregulation, I mean that it has the ability to maintain a certain amount of perfusion despite like a range of blood pressures or anything like that. So speaking of perfusion, the normal cerebral blood flow in a normal adult is about 50 cc's per 100 grams of brain per minute, or approximately 750 cc's per minute in the average adult. This is actually a pretty significant amount, and it does comprise of 15% of the cardiac output. Uh, this is the total cardiac output and 15%, so 1.5. Okay, and there are three main things that affect cerebral autoregulation. And there's a really good graph in the show notes, and of course, you can always Google it, um, that depicts this. But again, those three things are MAP, the mean arterial pressure, PaCO2, as well as the O2. So we're going to hit those things one by one. So for the map, in the normal person, then this just means like no history of hypertension or anything like that. Normal cerebral uh, blood flow is kind of maintained between a blood pressure of 60 to 160 millimeters mercury. And of course, if the patient does have hypertension, then the parameters kind of changes. And in that case, they'll shift the graph uh, to the right. So then they'll require more blood pressure to maintain the perfusion because that's pretty much where they're chronically at, okay? So going back to a normal person, if the MAP, the mean arterial pressure, is below 60, as you expect, you're not getting enough pressure to perfuse the brain. So then you have decreased cerebral blood flow. 
And if you go on the other side, if you go above 160, essentially you blow up the brain, right? So you disrupt the blood-brain barrier and then it just blows up. So basically you want to keep blood pressure between 60 and 160. That's like the, the Goldilocks zone. And at the beginning of the surgery, usually the surgeons will give you a blood pressure goal or parameters. And if you don't discuss that with you, bring it up. Tell them, like, uh, do you guys have any blood pressure goals? And essentially, almost all the time, it's keep them normal tensive. So systolics, like 100 to 140. Okay, so that's MAP. Next is the PaCO2. And if you look at the, the graph of, of the autoregulation, if the graph for CO2, it pretty much is a sigmoidal curve. So at low levels of CO2, you have decreased cerebral blood flow. And as you build up the amount of PaCO2, it increases the cerebral blood flow. And the linear part of the sigmoidal curve occurs between a PaCO2 of 20 to 80 millimeters of mercury, and you have a linear relationship of increase in cerebral blood flow. And to put it simply, the higher the CO2, the more the cerebral blood flow, and the lower the CO2, the lower the cerebral blood flow. And if you want metrics, so there, for every change of one millimeter mercury of PaCO2, it correlates to a similar change in the cerebral blood flow of 1 to 2 uh, cc's per 100 grams of brain per minute. And the cutoff, any PaCO2 less than 20 causes maximal cerebral vasoconstriction. So we'll kind of talk about this when we talk about the episode of craniotomies and, and whatnot. But this is why for neuro cases, we end up purposely hyperventilating a patient. So... In a case where a patient has increased intracranial pressure and we want to control that, one of the things that we could do is to purposely hyperventilate and drive down the PaCO2, which in turn drives down the cerebral blood flow, which finally decreases the intracranial pressure and the, and the intracranial pressure. Okay, so that's PaCO2. And lastly is the O2 tension. So according to Barish, uh, the O2 has minimal effect on cerebral blood flow. But if you look at the graph, essentially at low concentrations of oxygen you have, and when I say low, around 20 millimeters of mercury of oxygen, you have like maximal um, cerebral blood flow. And by the time you get to about 80 millimeters of mercury, it kind of levels off and stays the same in terms of the cerebral blood flow. So basically, the main things that we're going to be controlling throughout the procedure are things like MAP and PaCO2, and we'll try to maintain like a normal oxygen saturation throughout the procedure. Okay, so uh, the other concept is the cerebral perfusion pressure, or CPP, and this is defined as the MAP minus the intracranial pressure. So the higher the MAP, the larger your cerebral perfusion pressure. And as intracranial pressure increases, it decreases the cerebral perfusion pressure. So we'll kind of touch upon this again in the next section. So 
Um, before we move on, uh, it's important to note that spinal cord physiology is very similar to the brain. So things like the spinal cord perfusion pressure or SCPP is the same thing. So it's equal to the MAP minus the SSSP, which is the subarachnoid space pressure. So all the things that we kind of talked about, the autoregulation and the perfusion pressure, it also applies to the spinal cord. Okay, and the last portion of the physiology section is the effects of anesthetic drugs on cerebral blood flow. So a good amount of our anesthetics, they will decrease the CMRO2, things like propofol, etominate, benzodiazepines, as well as thiopental. So by decreasing the CMR2, you decrease the cerebral blood flow. Other drugs, things like opioids, uh, appear to have little effect on CMR2, cerebral blood flow, autoregulation, or PaCO2 uh, responsiveness. So that's why using things like uh, fentanyl pushes or remedy fentanyl drip are great for neurosurgery. And high yield board point is recording ketamine. And ketamine is one of the only drugs in our anesthetic arsenal that increases the cerebral blood flow and the CMRO2, but it appears to have little effect on the autoregulation. Next, regarding the volatile anesthetics, so things like isoflurane, sevoflurane, and desflurane are direct vasodilators, and it kind of is dose-dependent. So at lower doses, it has low, lower effects on cerebral blood flow, so basically anything less than 0.5 mac. But once you get to 1 mac and above, it disrupts the autoregulation, you have more cerebral blood flow, and it like suppresses the CMRO2. So this is why during uh, neurosurgery, they don't want you to use your volatile anesthetics, or one of the reasons why uh, you don't want to use volatile anesthetics and would opt for uh, TIVA instead, and uh, that's total intravenous anesthesia. Lastly, nitrous oxide is also a direct cerebral vasodilator, but it has minimal effects on CMRO2. All right, so we made it to the last section, pathophysiology. So first part of the pathophysiology section is the Monroe-Kelly Doctrine, and essentially it states that the skull contains three main things. One, the brain, which accounts for 1,400 cc's. Two, CSF, which accounts for 150 cc's. And lastly, blood, which accounts for 150 cc's. And basically, if there's an, any increase in volume of one intracranial compartment, it leads to a rise in intracranial pressure unless matched by the equal reduction in the volume of another compartment. So that's why if there's a mass or a big bleed in the brain, you see midline shifts, you have feared complication of brain herniation through the foramen magnum, for example. So essentially, big idea is it's a confined space and there's basically no room for anything else. Okay, so that's why if there's a brain bleed, or like a mass or something, the usual treatment is craniotomy to relieve the pressure in the brain to kind of restore the balance. Okay, next topic is intracranial pressure. Uh, the high yield number to remember for ICP is the normal 
uh, ICP is 7 to 15 millimeters of mercury. And poor, poor uh, neurologic outcome is associated with prolonged ICP above 20 to 25. And to kind of help us understand the concept of ICP and volume is something called the cerebral elastance curve. And elastance is defined as a change in pressure over the change in volume. So if you increase the pressure rapidly, it would increase the elastance, which will ultimately increase the intracranial pressure. So the cerebral elastance curve uh, on its two axes the intracranial pressure on the y-axis and the intracranial volume on the x-axis essentially looks like an uh, exponential increase curve. So there's three main components. The first first part is level, and this is when the intracranial elastance is low, and it's pretty much able to compensate for uh, any small masses or anything that's not supposed to be there. Uh, Things like non-pathologic states um, changes are compensated easily, but as you increase the intracranial pressure, it gets to an elbow part, and this one it starts to not be able to compensate. The elastance increases, and any small increase in volume would rapidly increase the intracranial pressure. So as the mass grows or the blood continues to bleed and pull, it would increase the volume in the brain or in the skull. And then in turn, it rapidly increases the intracranial pressure. And lastly, the third part, there was no real label for this in in bearish, but basically the third part, super elastins, very sensitive to changes in intracranial pressure as intracranial volume increases. So moving on, the most common cause of increased ICP is cerebral edema. And there's actually three types of cerebral edema, cytotoxic, vasogenic, and interstitial. For cytotoxic edema, essentially there's an increase in, in intracellular water. So this occurs during things like cerebral ischemia, where the ionic pumps fails to work, and then the ions accumulate and water goes into the cells. So that's cytotoxic. Basogenic is basically when you lose your blood-brain barrier integrity and then through the holes in the blood-brain barrier, you accumulate extracellular water. And this is common around regions surrounding tumors. And this is why we give Decadron at the beginning of the case for these procedures as Decadron it's great at controlling vasogenic edema. And lastly, interstitial edema occurs in patients with hydrocephalus. Basically, if there's like a blockage of CSF drainage, there's gonna the CSF has to go somewhere. So it goes into the interstitial space and just causes the edema. Okay, so that's intracranial pressure. And uh, we'll next talk about uh, intracranial hypertension. And intracranial hypertension usually occurs to one of two things. Either one, you increase the cerebral blood volume, or two, you have decreased venous drainage or CSF drainage. So factors that increase cerebral blood volume are things that increase the arterial inflow. So things like vasodilatory drugs, 
hypercapnia, severe hypoxemia, and acidosis. Things that decrease um, venous drainage or CSF drainage are things like decrease CSF absorption at the arachnoid villi or perhaps a mass effect from tumors. All right. So that's the main parts of the pathophysiology, and we'll wrap up this episode by talking about, uh, quickly talk about the clinical presentation of increased intracranial pressure. So generally, they would present a headache, nausea, vomiting. If you do an eye exam, you'll see papilledema, and in severe cases, you'll have Cushing's triad. So this consists of hypertension, bradycardia, and irregular respiration. And to kind of explain the hypertension, and this was taught to me by my senior resident, uh, Jared, and this occurs when you have, say, a patient with a brain bleed or like a massive tumor, it's a way to compensate for the cerebral perfusion pressure. So remember, cerebral perfusion pressure is defined as MAP minus ICP. So in the case of a tumor or brain bleed, you're increasing the ICP, right? And if the MAP stays the same, the cerebral perfusion pressure would decrease. So in order to compensate and maintain the same cerebral perfusion pressure, you have to increase the MAP. So that's why a lot of these patients uh, present with hypertension. All right. That's it for the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology review. It definitely went over the amount of time I expected, but hopefully it was high yield. Uh, and it's a good primer for the coming episode for anesthesia considerations for craniotomies and spine procedures. And uh, this is a good time to pause the audio and go take the post survey. Again, it's just one question. Um, and there's a section for comments if you like to give suggestions on improving the podcast. And I'll end this episode by giving you a fun fact. And this is from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the Kids Environment Kids Health section. And because I like cats, um, did you know cats have 32 muscles in each ear? If you didn't, now you do. All right, thank you for listening to this podcast. Uh, if you want to follow me on social media, I set up a Facebook page, Instagram, Twitter for this podcast. So if you follow it, you'll never miss an episode. Okay, well, with all of that said, um, this is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. <laughs>